Thank you, Jen. Good morning, Lakeside. I feel like I should start by addressing the issue raised by Jersey Sunday, which is specifically this jersey that I'm wearing. This N stands for Nebraska, which in Nebraska also stands for knowledge. <laughs> right? And I know wearing a Nebraska jersey, it's going to make a lot of you question my judgment uh, in this crowd. Uh, but I got to give you the context. You know, Nebraska, it's the hometown for both my wife and I. The University of Nebraska literally put food on my table. That's where my dad was a professor for 40 years. Um, our first date as a couple was a Nebraska volleyball game. Oh, isn't that sweet? And we haven't had a good football team in like 25 years. So you, you've got to admire the loyalty, if nothing else, to, to wear a Husker jersey. And, and here's what this jersey says about Lakeside, too. Um, even though my family is Cornhuskers, Lakeside just continues to pour out encouragement to us and comfort to us and care for us. And what is Christian love more than a bunch of Hawkeyes and Cyclones showing love to a Cornhusker family? So thank you to Lakeside for that as you continue to support us. This morning, we're continuing our series on 1 Corinthians, Messy Church, and a Majestic Gospel. So this is a letter written to people living 2,000 years ago in a completely different part of the world. But if we were to go back today to ancient Corinth, I think we'd start to realize that these people aren't as different from us as we might first think. If, if I had to sum up the people in Corinth as you study them, I would use the word strivers. They were striving for things. They were all trying to move up in the world. They lived in a city that was a hub for commercial shipping, and they all had a lot of uh, upward aspirations. But it was also a spot for intellectuals of the day. This was a hot spot for thinkers. Um, Corinth was just down the road from Athens, which was the home of the famous philosophers of Plato and Socrates. And in, in the heart of Corinth, there was a stone platform that looked like this. And the leading speakers, the intellectuals of the day, they would come to Corinth and they would sell tickets. And crowds would pack into this place to listen to them talk about the big ideas of their day. So really picture TED Talks in modern terms. Corinth loved them some modern wisdom. But even with this super intellectual obsession that Corinth had, they still weren't really known as a highbrow city because Corinth was also known as a party town. And in ancient Greece, if you wanted to say somebody was a party animal, you literally would say, that guy lives like a Corinthian. That was the common expression. So to get the right image of Corinth, I think you picture a TED talk full of people on spring break. That's kind of how this town would work. They were intellectuals, but they, they wanted to party. And in the middle of all of that, you've got this little church that's trying to figure out how should we live in this climate. And as you know from the book of 1 Corinthians, they're kind of making a mess of things at this church at the moment. So that's why Paul writes to them. And he's writing to deal with some specific issues in the church. Things like disunity and immorality being tolerated and them abusing the Lord's Supper or communion. But Paul doesn't really touch on those things at the beginning of the letter. Before he gets to any of those specific issues, Paul wants to talk about the underlying cause of the problem. And in this passage that Jen just read that we're focusing on today, verses 18 through 31, Paul zeroes in on this topic, the world's wisdom versus God's wisdom. The word wisdom appears in this passage, the word wisdom or wise, 12 times in 14 verses. Now, remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Dave explained that in the, the very opening of this book, Paul says, to the church in Corinth. 
And the word church there that's translates comes from a Greek word, ecclesia, which literally means called out ones. That is what a church is. We are the called out ones from our culture. And the core problem that this church is having in Corinth and the core problem we have to be aware of all the time is that Christians were not realizing just how fully they had to be called out of the world. They had to be different from the culture around them. Paul is showing us your minds can follow two tracks. You can go down worldly thinking or you can go down godly thinking. And those are two tracks they do not run parallel to one another. They go off in opposite directions. A Christian who is sold out to following Jesus, that Christian, they're not just a slightly modified version of an unsaved person. A Christian is a completely different thing. And Paul talks about this in some of his other letters. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. In Romans 12, 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the actual renewing of your mind. You'll have a totally new way of thinking if you're a faithful Christian. We all know this old expression, that you can't put a square peg in a round hole. Now, there's always going to be a wise guy in the room who says, sure, you can. You can make that work. I mean, you can do this. But to make a square peg fit in a round hole, you have to take away its squareness. You have to actually change what it is to make it fit. And I think the core message of this passage we're looking at today is that we should be cross-shaped people in a round world. We should be shaped in a way we don't fit into the world's grid anymore because we have been transformed. The only way that you make a Christian fit into the world's grid is if you take away the things that make you a Christian. It reshapes you. And that's what Paul's laying out for the Corinthian church here at the end of chapter one. From the ground up, a Christian's perspective is radically different because God's way is radically different from the world's way. And Paul gives us three things to look at. It's like he's asking this question, well, just how different is God's way? He said, well, look at three things. Look at how he saves us. Look at his wisdom compared to ours. And then look at who he uses. So if you look at verse 18 in this passage, Paul goes to start this contrast between the world's way and God's way. He goes to ground zero of the Christian belief. That is the cross. That's where he heads first. He says in verse 18, the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to people who are perishing. He says in verse 23, the cross, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. And again, it's foolishness to the Gentiles. Now for most of us in this room, it's really hard for us to figure out why the cross would be so foolish, because to us, it makes total sense. To us, the, the cross is beautiful. We make jewelry out of it. We decorate our homes with it. We hang it all over our churches. I was in Branson, Missouri last week. They covered the top of a mountain. This is the largest cross in North America, 218 feet high. The cross is commonplace to us. It is a beautiful thing to us, but we have to step back and think, okay, why? is the concept of the cross so foolish to so many people in so many different places throughout history? We'll start with the ancient world. To the ancient world, the cross, crucifixion itself, it was repulsive, it was grotesque, it was gruesome. Sometimes you'll hear this comparison today that, okay, like 
wearing a cross around your neck in those days would be like us wearing a little medallion shaped like an electric chair around our neck. But even that doesn't quite capture it because crucifixion was public. Crucifixion was designed to be as painful as it possibly could and to last as long as it could. And crucifixion was designed to be humiliating. The Romans wanted to make the person suffer and they wanted to humiliate them in front of their culture. And it's so much that if you read uh, the ancient materials, if you were at a dinner party or some social setting in Rome or Greece and you brought up crucifixion as a topic, you get shunned because polite people do not talk about this. It is not to be discussed. Now really, I got a sense of what crucifixion meant in that culture recently. I was reading about one of the earliest pieces of graffiti that showed Christianity. They found this archeologist did carved into a plaster wall in Rome. They think it was carved around the year AD 200. And it pictures a guy standing there and he's looking up at a cross and there's a figure on the cross. And the inscription, the guy's name is Alexaminos. And it says, Alexaminos worships his God. And he's looking at a man on the cross, but the man on the cross has a donkey's head. And I would show it to you, but honestly, I put it on my own screen and it felt so blasphemous, I didn't even wanna show it to you. But what they were saying is, if you worship a man on a cross, you're worshiping, in so many words, a donkey, because nobody who's worth anything would get crucified. That's what they thought in their culture. If you look at the Jews, the cross is a stumbling block because they were looking for a Messiah who would conquer everything and deliver them. So somebody hanging on a cross, dead at the hands of the Romans, that's not a Messiah. That's a stumbling block to the Jews. To the Greeks, the cross, it was a total defeat. And for a Greek mind, they were thinking about their gods. Their gods were superior to humans. Their gods competed with humans. Their gods defeated humans. There's no way a Greek god would die at the hands of a human being. And there's no way a Greek god would die for a human being. They thought it was just foolish. And then think about our own modern culture a modern mind. The most foolish thing about the cross to a modern mind is it's saying you can't help yourself. It's saying you need someone to save you because in our culture, the main thinking right now is, hey, all the answers are inside your head. You make all the rules. You can save yourself from anything you choose to. And the cross says, no, you can't. The cross says God had to come down here as Jesus Christ to save you. And that couldn't sound any more foolish to a modern mind right now. So the cross seemed foolish back then, it seems foolish to people now, but it's not foolish to everybody. Because in verse 24, Paul says, but to those who are called, whether they're a Jew or a Greek, the cross is something completely different. It's not weakness, it is strength, it is power, it's not foolishness, it is wisdom. Why? Why can the cross be something powerful and wise? Well, let's go back to the basics. Let's think about what exactly happens when a person becomes a Christian, when they put their faith in Christ. It starts with this realization. A person has to realize there is a gap between God's holiness and my sinfulness. And I realize I can't get to God because of that. There, it's a chasm that I cannot cross. But then we begin to accept the fact that there is an answer to that. And this is when salvation actually occurs. This is when we realize the way to bridge that gap is to accept that Christ paid the price for my sin. The cross is the bridge. 
This is where the cross comes into the center of everything that we believe, that it is making our way to God because he paid the price for our sin. One commentator said Christianity is a cross religion. It is everything to what we believe because the cross is where Jesus proved he was our savior. The cross and the empty tomb where he proved he could defeat death on our behalf. And here's the thing about being a Christian. The longer you live, the bigger it gets in your mind what Christ did for you. You understand more and more what's happening. The other day, a friend of mine was telling me this, this weird thing keeps happening. Every time I go to church, I feel worse about how sinful I am. <laughs> Have you had this problem? It's strange, isn't it? But I told him that's actually good news. Because what that means is you are a Christian. That means you have the Holy Spirit in you. That means God is showing you your sin. He's convicting you of it. And over time, what you realize is that gap between you and God is way bigger than you thought it was originally. Because you realize just how sinful you are. But guess what? The cross gets bigger every single time. Because you realize how much more Christ did for you than you thought way back at the beginning when you thought you were just a little bitty sinner. And over time, the cross looms larger and larger in our lives. But in our natural sinful state, it's almost impossible for us to see this. Paul says in verse 22, the Jews, they were the spiritually minded people of the day. They wanted spiritual truth. They were stumbling over Jesus. It said they were looking for a sign because apparently a guy who walked on water and raised the dead, not enough signs for them. They didn't see it. The Greeks, they were rational thinkers, just like our rational thinkers today. They looked at the cross, they said, this is foolish. There's no place in our plan for a crucified savior. The only way to begin seeing the beauty of the cross for what it is, is for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to your need for a savior. The idea that God became a man makes no sense until the day that it does. And the idea that a homeless preacher dying 2,000 years ago means something for you, that makes no sense until the day that it does. And then once it does, everything looks different. Once you realize what Christ did for you, all of a sudden you open the Bible and you see it with fresh eyes and it starts making more sense than it ever did before. And you see that this book written over 1,500 years by 40 different people, it makes sense from the beginning to the end. It's all one big story and it's all about Jesus. What is blocking you from seeing that? If you haven't done this yet, if you haven't realized that Christ is the bridge, the cross is the bridge. Are you looking for a political savior? That's what the Jews were looking for. And Jesus doesn't save us that way. Are you looking for something that makes sense in what our culture considers rational thinking? Jesus defies the world's logic, so you might be tempted to reject him. But if you're ready to hear the Spirit's leading, the story of the cross will transform in a moment from foolishness to the most beautiful thing you've ever seen and something you want to put your eyes on for the rest of your life. Well, the next thing Paul shows us when we're looking at how different God's way is, he said, well, look at this. Look at God's wisdom versus ours. In verse 19, Paul builds on this discussion. He's talking about the cross. In verse 19, he says what God does with human wisdom. In verse 19, he's quoting Isaiah 29, 14. So we're going to look at that. This is where God says to Isaiah, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. 
with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. In verse 20, Paul calls out three of the leading intellectuals of that culture. Verse 20 says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? These are the people that would come and stand on that stone platform. This is the TED talk of our day saying, where are you compared to God's wisdom? In verse 25, he provides the answer. Verse 25, he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is greater than the strength of men. Paul is saying, before humans start criticizing the cross, before humans say, that, that's just foolish. That makes no sense. God's saying, you ought to think about this. When humans reach their absolute intellectual peak, when we figure out as much as we're ever going to, we still can't even see the tail end of God's wisdom. It's so far out ahead of us. Well, that's kind of hard to swallow, isn't it? I mean, look at everything we've done as humans. It's pretty amazing. I, I am the first to admit, I don't understand how I can talk into this wireless mic in Polk City, Iowa, and on the other side of the world, somebody can watch it on live stream two seconds later. I don't know how that works. I'm impressed, right? I'm impressed with human ingenuity and all the things we've figured out. You're gonna go home this afternoon and you're gonna use technologies that would have looked like science fiction or magic to somebody 150 years ago. We have done amazing stuff. But when we stop and look at ourselves and say, look how far we've come, God is warning us, don't get too excited about yourself, okay? Because you don't know even the beginning of what I know. And sometimes I get a glimpse of this in my own daily life. I was thinking about this week, a few years ago, I met this new guy at church and he was asking me about these backpacking trips that I was going on. And specifically he said, how do you get uh, drinkable water out there? I said, well, we have these water filters that you know, we can use springs and streams and we pump the water out of it. And he said, well, how do those water filters work? And this is my chance to mansplain, right? Like, oh, well, let me explain to you how these work. I said, well, it's kind of technical, but basically there's a little filter in there and it's got these little pores and it filters out stuff that could make you sick. There's stuff called Girardia, but I said, you know, I, I don't want to weigh you down with all that. And I said, by the way, what do you do for a living? Wait for it. He said, well, I'm a microbiologist for the United States Department of Agriculture. <laughs> that is the kind of foolishness Paul is warning us about. There I was. I'm thinking, you know, I read the side of the box on that water filter. Let me explain microbiology to you. But even more than that, think about that guy going to God and saying, God, let me explain microbiology to you. He would have looked even dumber than I did because the gap between me and that guy was tiny compared to the gap between a professional microbiologist and God. That's what God is showing us. And several times in the Bible, we see God put humans in their place in this area. At the end of the book of Job, Job starts questioning God on why he has sent so much suffering into God's life or Job's life. And finally, after all these questions Job is asking, finally, God has enough. And in Job 38, two through three, he says this, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And I love this line. He says, dress for action like a man, Job. I will question you and you make it known to me. Then God proceeds to ask Job a few basic questions. It's like, okay, Job, you're questioning what I know. 
Let me ask you this. Can you make the sun come up whenever you want in the morning? And he says, can you, have you ever walked on the bottom of the ocean, Job? Do you know what's down there? He said, Job, can you make it rain whenever you need water? He's waiting, waiting for Job at any point. And it's important to realize here that the issue isn't Job asking, why are you doing this? I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? We ask that all the time, say, God, why? That is asked all over the place in the book of Psalms. That's a question God allows us to ask. That is different though from us saying, God, you made a mistake. That is different from us saying, God, let me fill you in on the things you're missing. When we tell God we know more than him, that's rebellion. And that is outside the line of what God is going to tolerate. In verse 40, or chapter 40, verse eight of Job, God says to Job, will you condemn me that you may be right? Saying, Job, how dare you think you know more than I do? God will not have us questioning his wisdom. He will not have us question his judgment. And after God fires all these questions at Job, asking him, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? Job finally, he just crumples. In chapter 42, verse three, Job says, I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. That's what Paul wants us to feel when we think about human wisdom compared to God's wisdom. Specifically, Paul is saying, this is what tiny little people sound like. When they say, God, the cross, that's just foolish. What kind of weird plan is that, God? He's saying, you sound like Job when you talk like that. Paul is reminding us that to question God's means of salvation is to utter things we don't understand. And finally, Paul shows us that if you want to understand just how different God's way is, look at who he uses. It's Super Bowl Sunday, so we should talk about this. We should just take a minute to savor the fact that Iowa has kind of become this awesome place for creating quarterbacks nobody believes in. Okay, let's talk about Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant. Last pick in the 2022 draft, starting the Super Bowl tonight, and he was in the MVP, MVP conversation for the whole league this year. But Brock Purdy, he's got nothing on a guy named Kurt Warner. Remember that name? Guy out of Northern Iowa that nobody drafted. He's bagging groceries at Hy-Vee, winds up playing in three Super Bowls, wins one of them, and he's in the NFL Hall of Fame. That's Iowa, right? These are the quarterbacks that are coming out of here. Well, as Christians, I think we can look at it this way. We're all a bunch of Brock Purdy's and Kurt Warner's. Nobody looks at us and says, yes, I'm drafting them. That's what Paul is pointing out. In verses 26 through 28, he tells the, the Corinthian believers, he says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul says, I'm looking at this church, not a lot of first round draft picks among y'all. Okay? <laughs> Most of y'all didn't even get drafted or picked out of high school by a college, right? Nobody looks at you and says, yes, that's what I'm gonna use but that's who God chooses to do his work through. And it is not unusual when God uses a nobody to do his work. That's his pattern. We see it all over the Bible. Just look at all these stories. Jacob was a con man. Gideon was a coward. Peter, James, and John, they were uneducated fishermen. And we could name dozens more like that. These are all people who were utterly average 
or outright disappointing to everyone around them. And God took them and he transformed them and he used them in his service. The famous missionary, Jim Elliott, somebody asked him to define what is a missionary. He said, a missionaries, he said, we were a bunch of nobodies trying to tell everybody about somebody. We're a bunch of nobodies. That's all of us. God doesn't use people because of who you are. He uses you despite who you are. Why? Why, why does God specialize in using ordinary people to do his work? Well, Paul tells us right here in verse 27, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak to shame the strong. And at the end of chapter one, Paul describes more of why the all-knowing God, who's wiser than we can even imagine, has chosen to deliver salvation to humans in a way that seems so foolish to us through the cross. In verse 31, so that as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When someone with a messy past gets used by God, who gets the glory for that? God does. When someone who seems to have no ability by the world standards goes and does amazing things for God, who gets the glory for that? God does. Reading this, I thought about a conversation I had years ago with a National Geographic photographer. His name was Joel Sartori, and he was telling me about how he kind of got started in the business. And it started with one day, he got a call from a book publisher, and they were putting together this book. They were gonna send photographers all over the world and they would all shoot for 24 hours in the location they went to. Then at the end, it all gets put together in a coffee table book so you could look at 24 hours in the life of planet Earth. And he's like, great, what are you offering me? They said, well, we got two locations you can choose from. You can go shoot for a day in either place. What's number one? Moscow, option number one, great. What's option number two? Western Kansas, these are your two options. Which one would you rather go shoot for a day in? Well, guess what Joel Sartori chose? Western Kansas, why? Because anybody could make Moscow look cool. But if I go to Western Kansas and I come back with good images, I look like the best photographer on the planet. Well, guess how this worked out? I already told you he was a National Geographic photographer by the time I met him. He came back from Western Kansas with stuff that wowed people. What's the takeaway of that? All of us are Western Kansas, <laughs> okay? People look at us and they're like, eh, not a lot to see there. Not a lot to write home about. But God looks at everybody and he says, that's somebody I can use. Because if I do something with them, I will be glorified because everyone will know it was my work. Depending on where your head is this morning, this should either humble you or it should encourage you, depending on what you're feeling. If you are prone to trusting too much in your own material success, I'm gonna put this kindly, get over yourself. <laughs> One commentator said, we should never transform what God has done for us to a boast about us. Hear that again, never transform what God does for us into a boast about us. It all came from him. Now, if you're on the other side and you're feeling worthless and you're saying, I got nothing to offer, get your head up. There's an old friend of mine, every time he spoke, he would say this, God doesn't want your ability, he wants your availability. Just show up. God will use you for something. 
And when we stand back and we look at all the things God does through utterly mediocre people by the world's standards, what should our response be? It's in verse 31. Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And he's referring there to Jeremiah 9, 24, where God says this, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The only thing we're allowed to boast about. If you want to brag about something, Jeremiah and Paul are saying, if you want to brag about something, brag about the fact you know God. Because guess what? You will never get arrogant the more you get to know God. Because the more you know him, the more you're going to see that gap between you and God, and the more grateful you're going to be that he sent Christ to bridge that gap and make you into something and to save you. And one of the great things about boasting only in God is it's circumstance proof. That boast will never be taken away from you if you're boasting only in God. God doesn't change. God doesn't go away. And he doesn't fail. Anything else you're prone to boasting, it can go away. Money can go away. Jobs can go away. Health, fitness, relationships, they can all go away. Even your accomplishments. You think they'll never take that one away from me. Yeah, well, somebody, nobody's going to care about that accomplishment anymore. It can go away. But if you are boasting only in God, that's eternal. If you want to boast, boast in the fact that God loves me. Even though I'm worthless by the world's standards, he loves me not because of anything I did, but because of his mercy and his greatness. So those are three ways. Three ways that God's way is upside down from the world's way. Or to say it more accurately, God is right side up in an upside down world. But we have to be careful about our thinking because it's, the choice isn't always as crystal clear, is it? Sometimes it gets hard to tell the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. So I'm going to end here with a list of 10 ways that worldly wisdom can creep on us. And we're going to go through that because we have to be aware of drift in our lives. Think about a ship. If it gets off course by one or two degrees, that's no big deal for a few hours. But wait a week. If it keeps going on that heading, everybody's going to wake up on that ship and go, how did we get all the way over here? We were only off that much. So we have to be constantly aware of where our mind is. I'm sure you're going to find convicting things on this list. That's the point. There were certainly some on there that were convicting for me, but I want you to see hope in here too. When Paul wrote his letter to the church in Rome later in his life, he talks about unsaved people as slaves. You are held slave by your sin because the world's thinking, despite what it promises, it is not there to give us freedom. The world's wisdom wants to enslave us. But if we follow Jesus, that gives us a path to freedom and to life. Romans 8, 6 and 7, Paul said, For to set the mind on flesh is death. But set the mind on the spirit, that's life and that is peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Worldly wisdom will slip through the cracks of our mind and it will put us in a position of opposition to God, which is not where anybody should be. So what are these things we should watch out for? Here are 10. And this is a, if you haven't seen it, it's in your bulletin. This list is in there. 
so you can take them with you. Number one, you bend the Bible to be more current. It would make a lot of our social situations and work situations more convenient if the Bible was a little more with the times, wouldn't it? I mean, there's, there's stuff in there that's just not convenient to the world we live in. This whole thing about marriage between one man and one woman, well, that's not very convenient. And the idea that, you know, we should turn the other cheek, we should be kind to our enemies, well, that's just not the way we do things in our culture. So there's a tendency to read the Bible and say, well, I'm going to throw out the stuff that doesn't fit our culture. That's an artifact. We can get rid of it. If you are doing that, you're twisting the word of God. Do not be tempted to rewrite the Bible to fit in with current worldly wisdom. Number two, you never feel slightly out of place at work. I was talking with a a friend recently and he said, I think I might have to almost purposely limit my own career because to advance, I'm going to have to keep going into positions that I just don't think are good ones for a Christian to be in. I think I shouldn't be doing some of these things. And I told him, that's a good sign. Like I said earlier, that means you're being convicted. The Holy Spirit is saying, they're different from you. You're a cross-shaped peg. Those are round holes. You're not going to fit into all of those. And I'm not just talking about big stuff, like business fraud. I'm talking about just average things that come up. When everyone from the office gets drunk constantly, are you always in the middle of that? Or are you saying, I just can't go down that road with you guys? If there is something where they're taking a client out on the town and they're doing things you know a Christian shouldn't be a part of, do you jump in the car anyway? Because you got to sign that contract next week with that client. In Genesis, think about the story of Lot. He went and pitched his tent, set up shop next to the city of Sodom. Why? Because the greenest grass was there. That was the best for his cattle. And he said, well, I'm not, I'm not there for Sodom. I'm there for the grass. Right. Where did he wind up? in Sodom, and he lost his family to all the sinful behavior there. Christians have to decline some things. Do you ever do that? Number three, your best friends are unbelievers. Now hear me correctly on this. Christians have to be rubbing shoulders with unbelievers. That's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus did. That's what we want to do. That's how we get to know people and how we tell them about Jesus. But what I'm talking about, who are your closest friends? Because when you ask for advice, or you pour your heart out, you want the advice coming back from somebody who's got the Bible at the center of their worldview. And think about who are you running around with, with your kids? Who do you go on vacation with? You want your kids influenced by people who have the Bible at the center of their world. Number four, you tolerate sinful habits in your life. This is one of the things Paul calls the church in Corinth out for. We're going to come to that where they are allowing immoral people to just keep doing their thing in the church and nobody's saying a word about it. Do you let that happen in your life? We say all the time around here, paths lead to places. Think about King David, a very extreme example. He started out lusting, that led to adultery, that led to murder, that he covered up. Worldly wisdom says just tolerate that little thing in your life. How bad can it get, right? A Christian biblical mindset says you've got to deal with the sin before it gets bigger in your life. Number five, your media intake dwarfs your Bible intake. How much time do you spend saturated in your favorite news channel? How much time do you spend listening to podcasts? How much time on social media? How much time streaming stuff? There is a healthy place for media usage, totally, I get that. 
But what I'm asking is, what's the loudest voice in your head? Who is speaking the most loudly? What wisdom is being poured into you hour after hour every day? For a Christian, they know I have to shape my thinking with God's word, not other things. Number six, you talk more about politics than Jesus. Well, that one's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Do the people who hang around you know a whole lot more about your opinions on the election or the latest political issue than they do about what you think about Jesus? What should a Christian be talking about more? Don't fit into the round hole on that one. Number seven, your finances show God is a low priority. Do you budget in such a way that you take, before you spend anything else, there's a certain amount I'm gonna give to God's work. Or do you spend on everything else you wanna do and then whatever's left over, God gets some of it. That shows your priorities. Your checkbook, your credit card statement, that's like the most valid witness of your priorities that there is. It's gonna show what wisdom you value the most. Number eight, you live in constant conflict with other people. This is another thing Paul is gonna call out in the church in Corinth. They're fighting with each other. There's a lot of disunity. And conflict comes from being self-centered. That comes from boasting in our own interests, our own accomplishments. Whereas a Christian, a biblical mindset is to say, Christ sacrificed himself to save me. Therefore, I should give up my own interests to serve the people around me. Someone asked me under the first service, okay, you're, you're saying don't be in conflict, but you also said don't go along with everything around you. Is that a conflict? Like, no, because what I'm saying is be different from the world, but don't be a jerk, okay? You can graciously say I can't participate in something. Number nine, your kids see you sacrifice for everything except your faith. When your kids look at your life, they're, they're probably seeing you make sacrifices. You're probably sacrificing some things to do your job. You're probably sacrificing some things to be a part of all of their activities. Do they ever see you sacrifice anything in order to put God first? If they don't, that's telling them something about your priorities. And then number 10, you look to things to fix your problems. A worldly mindset says, I'm just one thing away from solving all of it. If I get the promotion, that's gonna fix this. If I get the raise, if I get the new house, if I get this vacation, I'll come back, everything's gonna be better then. That's a worldly mindset. A worldly mindset says, the problem is my environment. A biblical mindset says, you are the problem. You're a sinner and only God changing your heart is gonna change all those things that you're battling. So those are 10 things to watch for. We could talk for an hour about other ones. So just look at this list and say, am I cross-shaped or am I shaped like the round hole of the world? What am I like? Look through this, and if you have areas to work on, and we probably all have multiple ones on this list, repent of those things. Go to God and say, I'm in the wrong here, help me. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. God wants to use us, even if nobody else thinks we have anything, but the way he uses us is we submit to his wisdom and make that the shape of our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter preserved for us to this church in Corinth that even though it's from a long time ago in a place very far from Iowa, it's so relevant that we see the same things in this church that we battle. 
And we just pray this morning that you will open all of our eyes, that we don't think your wisdom is foolishness like the world tries to convince us. And I pray if there's someone who has never put their faith in Christ, if, if they came in today saying, this is just some old fairy tale, I pray that you open their eyes. And those of us who have put our faith in Christ, thank you for letting us see that. Even as we talked about, we can't twist it into, we weren't the brilliant ones who saw our need for a savior. You, you opened our eyes. You did that. And we thank you for that. And we pray that you'll do it for more of the people in this room who still need to find you. And for those of us who are Christians, help the cross get bigger every single day in our mind. On those days when we just, all we can see is our failures. All we can see is just our, how we keep falling into the same stupid traps over and over again. Help us to see the cross is the answer to all of that. The cross gets bigger in our mind because you knew how weak we were when you saved us. You paid for all of those sins. Help us to just glory in the cross every day. And I just pray that you will help us to align our hearts with you. Help the people around us to say there's something different about them. They're, they're not the same as all the other people. And the answer is because Jesus has saved us. Help us to witness to you in that way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.